This is a Psalm of David. It's Psalm 145. It says, I will extol you, my God, O King, I, and I will bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you, and I will praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall praise your works to another, and shall declare your mighty acts. I will meditate on the glorious splendor of your majesty, and on your wondrous works. Men shall speak of the might of your awesome acts, and I will declare your greatness. They shall utter the memory of your great goodness, and shall sing of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and full of compassion, slow to anger, and great in mercy. The Lord is good to all, and his tender mercies are over all his works. All your works shall praise you, O Lord, and your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom, and the talk of your power, to make known to the sons of men his mighty acts, and the glorious majesty of his kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord upholds all who fall and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look expectantly to you, and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways, gracious in all his works. The Lord is near to all who call upon him, to all who call upon him in truth. He will fulfill the desire of those who fear him. He will also hear their cry and save them. The Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth shall speak the praise of the Lord, and all flesh shall bless his holy name forever and ever. I want to go ahead and say a quick prayer before we get started today. Lord, that's what it's all about. Reading that psalm reminds me that praising you is what it's all about. The Lord is great and greatly to be praised. And how often we let our worship fail in that, where we we uh, direct our worship of the church to ourselves and what's pleasing to us when all that matters is what's pleasing to you. Help us to be those type of people that will glorify you with every fiber of our soul and to bring you glory all the days of our lives. Help us to build each other up when we're down and help us to edify each other always so that you will be glorified and sanctified and hallowed on the lips and in the hearts of your people. We love you and we praise you. Please bless this service and bless the sermon ahead. And we love you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I'm going to go ahead and read you uh, Exodus, our sermon today, uh, 3, verses 7 through 12. It's called The Call of Moses, A Sign of Promise. So starting in, uh, and just so you know, I'm say this now so that you know for next week is uh, one of the most memorable passages in all of the Bible. Anybody here that doesn't know the words, I am that I am, hasn't been very well informed in their faith. And that's what we'll be talking about next week is uh, Exodus 3, 13 through uh, 16, I believe. But uh, today it's uh, Exodus 3, 7 through 12, the call of Moses, a sign of promise. Uh, and the Lord said, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. So I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up from that land to a good and large land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. Now, therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. Come now, therefore, and I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh, and that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? So he said, I will certainly be with you, and this shall be a sign to you that I have sent you. When you have brought out the people of Egypt... You shall serve God on this mountain. Give me a minute to polish my glasses. I can't see very much here. As we go through today's verses, it's going to seem like God is doing something for Israel that was previously unplanned. It kind of sounds that way as you read those verses, didn't it? Israel is in Egypt. Israel is in distress. And because of that, God is going to deliver Israel. We can leave it at that and just finish up, can't we? But that isn't all of the story. The promise of being brought out of Egypt preceded their journey into Egypt, and the promise of possessing Canaan preceded even that. The reason for Israel's deliverance from Egypt is based on several things which have now all come to pass. In other words, it is the perfect time for it to come about based on those things which were already promised and also which are in accord with the very nature of God. Now, why is this relevant to us? 
The answer is that the exact same thing, and I mean exactly, has happened in our own lifetime, and it's still ongoing. God said in advance that Israel would be returned to the land, like when he spoke to Abraham uh, about the exodus from Egypt. He, in advance, gave the exact time that they would be returned. Further, he has made more promises to them which are future to us even right now. We can read the word spoken to Abraham and we can say, sure, it came about just as expected. God said it would, and it did. And so we can feel good about how nifty it was and how sure God's word is because of it. But do we have the same confidence in that same word about the issues which surround us today? Apparently not. Most of the Christian world either rejects the notion of predictive prophecy, or they say it only applies to the church now not to Israel. There's actually an immense lack of faith of, uh, in the surety of God's word when it deals with things that we either disagree with or which we purposely misunderstand. Let's not have that attitude. If we aren't sure of an issue, we should research it and then accept it or dismiss it after the researching, not dismiss it first. I can tell you with all confidence that the surety of God's word is tied up in how God deals with Israel, which exists in the world right now. Our text verse for today comes from Isaiah chapter 42. I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory I will not give to another, nor my praise to carved images. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Now, I'm not the biggest fan of Israel as a people. A lot of people think I am, but I'm not. But I am the biggest fan of Israel as God's people. This is why I support them. And I know this because this is what the Bible shows us. And that same word has made many wonderful promises to us as well. The promises are a sign to us that these things will come about. If we have faith in the sign, then the journey getting to that sign is guaranteed. And absolutely nothing can hinder us in the process. The down and outs that we face in life are simply a part of us getting there. Now, that should be a wonderful reassurance, especially because the down and outs can really, really stink. But if the sign is true, then what really, really stinks will surely pass. And the good, the pleasant, and the aromatic promises which are ahead of us are a great hope, and they're an anchor for our soul. Moses will be given a sign today to give him hope and help through something that he doesn't want to do. So let's cherish the signs that we have been given because they offer us the same hope and the same help. It's all to be found in his superior word. And so let's turn to that precious word once again. And may God speak to us through his word today. And may his glorious name ever be praised. Now I have three thoughts for you today. The first is deliverance is promised. This is verses seven and eight. Verse seven begins with these words, and the Lord said, now, because we take sermons in these small bite-sized nuggets, we need to remember what it said back in verse 4 of our previous sermon. Here's what it said. So when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. It is said that the Lord saw and that God called. Now it says that the Lord said. It is Jehovah, the establisher and the keeper of the covenant who is speaking. He is God. Though they're being used interchangeably, they are also used to form distinctions in our minds. If it were not so, either the term God or the term Lord would be used. Because both are, we're asked to reflect on the role of each. Verse 7 goes on, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt. There's a lot of information in these few words here. First, the Hebrew says, Ra'o ra'iti, seeing I have seen. The phrase is not saying that all of a sudden he noticed the oppression, but rather that he had continually seen the oppression. His eyes had not been inattentive to their plight, but the fullness of time had not yet arrived. God told Abraham a definite moment of time that the people would be afflicted. He told him that those who would be afflicted would then be judged. And he also gave the reason for what would occur. All of that is found in Genesis chapter 15. Here's what it says. Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs and will serve them and they will afflict them 400 years and also the nation whom they serve I will judge. Afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. Now as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. 
you shall be buried at a good old age. But in the fourth generation, they shall return here. And here's the reason why. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. As a display of grace and mercy upon another group of people called the Amorites, the affliction of the covenant people was allowed to continue. But we did see in a previous passage that the affliction was not wholly undeserved. Israel followed after other gods while they were in Egypt and they suffered for their actions. However, what did they do? They finally called out to the God, the true God in their plight. And so the attentive ears of the Lord had heard. As the verse says, I have surely seen the oppression of my people. They are his people. He has called them and he would never leave them nor forsake them. Here in the last moments of the allotted time, which was spoken to Abraham 430 years earlier, the Lord calls out to Moses from the burning bush. The moment of Israel's deliverance is drawing near. Verse 7 goes on. And have heard the cry because of their taskmasters. Now, the word taskmasters is not the same as we saw in a previous sermon. All right. Before it was the word sare misim, or the chief of the tributes. These would have exacted tribute from the people either in labor but most probably in very heavy collections that we might call taxes. This word here is nagas, which comes from a word meaning to drive like an animal, or maybe a workman, or a debtor, or even an army. The implication is to tax, to harass, and to tyrannize somebody. The people were constantly afflicted, and they were never given rest from it. Now that sounds a lot like what Israel faces today with all of their enemies around them. They're constantly needling them. But it is a state which can only be expected to get worse, not better, until they call out to the Lord for deliverance. This concept of the people crying out for deliverance is not an unusual thing in the Bible either. In fact, scripture is replete with examples of it. The people turn from God, they suffer, the people call out to God, and he responds. And we have the same thing happening in America, so you can think of America as I'm talking. No sooner does he respond, though, than what happens? The people turn back to their old ways, they forget the Lord. And because of this, they once again face oppression. In turn, they call out to him and he responds. It's a repetitive cycle of arrogance, followed by immense disobedience, followed by humility. And then it's followed by the torn heartstrings of the Lord, and that results in the bestowing of mercy. In one of the most memorable examples of this, we can go to the book of Judges. The pattern had repeated itself four times already in that one book. The people turned from the Lord. The Lord let them have their own way. They didn't like how it turned out, and so they cried out to him. In response, he delivered them. However, in Judges chapter 10, it appeared that they had gone too far this time. Here's what it says. So the Lord said to the children of Israel, did I not deliver you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites and from the people of Ammon and from the Philistines? Also the Sidonians and the Amalekites and the Maonites oppressed you, and you cried out to me, and I delivered you from their hand. Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I will deliver you no more. Go and cry out to the gods which you have chosen. Let them deliver you in your time of distress. But the people continue to acknowledge their guilt. In the next verses, we read this. And the children of Israel said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems best to you. Only deliver us this day, we pray. They know these false gods can't rescue them, so they finally turn their hearts back to God. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord, and his soul, meaning the Lord, could no longer endure the misery of Israel. Now, although America is in Israel, we've followed the same pattern several times. When things have gotten bad, we've turned to the Lord, and he has heard. I'm afraid, though, that we may be past our time of final restoration. We have gone from arrogance to complete wickedness. And without a true change, I believe we may be at the end of our story. We'll see how it pans out. Verse 7 goes on. For I know their sorrows. The expression, I know their sorrows, implies understanding and comprehension, which must then include feeling, compassion, and even a tender desire for help. As Adam Clark says about these words, he says, I have considered their sorrows, and my eye affects my heart. In this one verse, we have seen four distinct attributes of the Lord. First, it said the Lord said. Next, the Lord saw. Third, the Lord heard. Finally, the Lord knew. To speak implies a mouth. To see implies eyes. To hear implies ears. And to know implies a mind. The question is, are these physical attributes or are they not? In the case of God, the answer is surely not. God doesn't have parts. 
In the case of the Lord, however, he has appeared in the garden, he has appeared to Abraham, he has wrestled with Jacob by the Jabbok River, and he will continue to appear throughout the entire Old Testament. Finally, he will come in the person of Jesus Christ in the New. How do we interpret the attributes of the Lord Jehovah in the Old Testament? It's very perplexing and it's difficult to grasp, but I personally believe in what is called the eternal Christ, that the Jesus Christ, the Lord of the New Testament, is the same Lord as in the Old. I do not believe in a pre-incarnate Christ, meaning that he just showed up and he wasn't really fully human at that time. To me, that's a logical contradiction. I believe in the eternal Christ. He is Jesus. Verse 8, so I have come down. The Lord descending or coming down is something seen again and again and again in the Bible. He is in heaven. We are on earth. At times, he comes down in judgment upon the earth, such as when he came down to see and attend to Sodom and Gomorrah. At other times, he comes down to help the downtrodden and the afflicted. In his grace and mercy, he condescends to come down to view our miserable plight and to attend to it. In the case of what will happen in Egypt, both will actually apply. He has come down in pity upon Israel, which will in turn result in coming down in judgment upon Egypt. Verse 8 continues, to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians. Because of the circumstances which surround his people, the Lord tells Moses why he has come down. It is specifically to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians. Forty years earlier, Moses thought that he would be their deliverer. Remember that? But they rejected him. His time hadn't come. Now the Lord is there to tell him that it in fact has. But we don't want to lose sight of the bigger picture here. In the greatest sense of all, deliverance from the bondage of Egypt pictures deliverance from the bondage of sin. While looking at the true story of Israel's deliverance from Egypt, as well as the pictures that this story is making about Israel's deliverance during the tribulation period, we need to remember this above all else. The work of Christ on our behalf is what should come to mind. Jesus makes this explicitly clear in John chapter 8. He says this, then Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Then they answered him, we are Abraham's descendants and have never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say that? You will be made free. Jesus answered them, most assuredly I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin, and a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Therefore, if the Son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. This is all picturing the work of Christ. The apostle in the New Testament, the apostles refer to this several times in the epistles. All right? Man is in bondage. Man tires of that bondage. He calls out to the Lord, and the Lord rescues him. If we can keep this thought in our mind that the mercy upon the Israelites is reflective of the Lord's mercy upon us, it makes the story all that much more relevant to our own lives and circumstances. Just as the Lord came down in pity towards Israel and in judgment upon Egypt, the Lord Jesus came down in pity upon humanity and in judgment upon sin, which separates us from our Father. Verse 8 continues, And to bring them up from that land. In Exodus 1, verse 7, it said that Israel filled the land. They had outgrown Goshen, and at the same time they had caused the Egyptians to fear. Now the Lord is ready to make good on his promise to Abraham, which he made 430 years earlier. At that time, he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to inherit. The land was promised to Abraham and then to Isaac and then to Jacob. Just before entering Egypt, 215 years after speaking to Abraham and 215 years before now speaking to Moses, the Lord said this to Jacob, I am God. The God of your father, do not fear to go down to Egypt, for I will make of you a great nation there. I will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also surely bring you up again. And Joseph will put his hand on your eyes. Verse 8 continues, to a good and large land. The actual size of the land which is promised to Abraham is much larger than they possessed for most of their history. Only for a very brief time did they possess the entire land of promise. It includes all of where Israel is today, it includes Gaza, the Golan Heights, through Syria, and all the way up to the Euphrates River. Deuteronomy 11, verse 24, gives us a very good outline of it. In all, it's about 
450 miles long, and it varies from 60 to 120 miles wide, and it comprises about 50,000 square miles of land. Surely it is to be considered a good and large land. The spiritual picture word to be given here, though, is very similar. We live in the narrow confines of a sin-filled world, but the Lord has promised to deliver us to the broad spaces of the infinite realm of heaven. We live in the narrow confines of time, which eventually consumes us at our death, but the Lord has promised to deliver us unto eternal life. The 118th Psalm gives us a very good hint of this. It says this, I called out to the Lord in distress. The Lord answered me and set me in a broad place. Interestingly, though, the only way to reach this place of infinite broadness and eternal duration is through a very, very narrow gate. As Jesus said with his own lips, enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in by it. Because narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. The contrast could not be clearer. A narrow path to an infinitely wide and unrestricted paradise, or a very broad path to the narrowest confines of hell itself. Please choose wisely. Verse 8 continues, to a land flowing with milk and honey. This is the very first time of 20 times that this expression is going to be used in the Bible. The last time it's going to be used is in Ezekiel chapter 20, where it is also called the glory of all lands. A land flowing with milk and honey implies richness and fertility. Milk comes from cows, and so it means there will be abundant pasture lands. Honey comes from bees, which pollinate flowers, and so it implies all kinds of fruit trees and herbs and flowers of the field. Deuteronomy 8, verses 7 through 10 gives us a beautiful picture of the land. Here's what it says. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks, of water, of fountains and springs that flow out of valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive oil and honey, a land in which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing, a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper. When you have eaten and are full, then you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land which he has given you. I should note that because I've been there, that Israel of today is once again just like that. It's a land that is overflowing with abundance, and yet scholars of the not-too-distant past described it as a desolate wasteland <laughs> lacking people and lacking produce. Adam Clark, who lived in the 19th century, says this about the land of Israel. Cultivation is now almost entirely neglected in this land because of the badness of the government and the scantiness of the inhabitants. I bring this up to highlight the lie that there was never any sizable portion of Palestinians residing in the land before Israel returned and brought it back to usefulness. There were people there. The numbers are recorded by Mark Twain in his travels, but it was not what we're being told the lie of today. It was a wasteland. It was devoid of people, and it was unfit for any type of productive use. And one more thing about the term a land flowing with milk and honey. That isn't just speaking of physical abundance at all. It's also speaking of spiritual abundance. It is the land of God's word and the people through whom that word has come. The word of God is said to be sweeter than honey in the Bible. And it's also equated with milk, which nourishes. Thus, it is a reference to that as well. Verse 8 continues, to the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. Six group of people are mentioned here. At other times, five or seven or eight are mentioned. At Abraham's time, ten people groups were mentioned. It is not certain by scholars why the names are stated sometimes and overlooked at other times, but God has his reasons, even if they aren't plainly evident to us. It is to the place where these people dwell that the Lord promises to deliver the people of his inheritance. I have seen the oppression of my people and the great miseries they have had to endure, but I will deliver every true heart under the church steeple. My promise to them is eternal and sure. Not forever will I remain silent, I will not wait too long to receive them unto me. Someday the time will have been sufficiently spent, and the trumpet will sound out jubilantly. I have a plan, and it is being worked out, and at the right moment I will rise to receive my bride. There will be a loud resounding shout, and my people will forever be by my side. Our second thought today is I will send you to Pharaoh, which is verses 9 and 10. Verse 9, Now therefore behold, the cry of the children of Israel has come to me. This verse is 
right here is stated in the opposite order of verse 7. That verse began by saying he had seen the oppression and then that he had heard their cry. This verse begins with hearing their cry first and the reason goes back to the previous chapter where it said this, then the children of Israel groaned because of the bondage and they cried out and their cry came up to God because of the bondage. At that time, a definite article preceded the word God, the God, implying that they had decided to call out to the true God. Their oppression had gone on since Moses left 40 years earlier, but only when they called out to the true God did he respond. The same is true with Israel today. They have been under punishment since Christ left, but only when they call out to the true God will he hear and respond. And this was all exactingly pictured in our Joseph sermons. If you followed those sermons, you know that is exactingly pictured in what's coming in the future. Verse 9 continues, And I've also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Because of their cry, he acknowledges their oppression. It is a repetition and yet a rewording of verse 7 in preparation for his response and a remedy which is to be found in the next verse. Israel is oppressed, the Egyptians have been the oppressors, and the people have cried out to the God. Now the God, the Lord, will respond. Verse 10, come now therefore and I will send you to Pharaoh. In Genesis 12, the Lord called Abraham with these words, get out of your country, from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and I will curse him who curses you and in you all of the families of the earth shall be blessed. In what is not a dissimilar occurrence, the Lord now calls Moses. He has been in Midian for 40 years. He has a family, he has flocks, and he has a life which has been at best routine and uneventful. But like Abraham, he is now called to put all of that aside and to put his faith and his trust in the Lord's direction. For Moses, that direction is to go to Pharaoh, to the house that he was raised in, and to a family that would still have the remembrance of him and what he had done and which caused him to leave in the first place. He had departed 40 years earlier after killing an Egyptian in an attempt to save one of his brothers, but he was rejected by the people whom he had hoped would recognize him as their deliverer. Verse 10 continues, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. This is the second time that the Lord has identified himself directly with Israel. They are called my people. As Moses is an Israelite, then he is identified with them too. The Lord is not going outside of his people to find a deliverer, but to one from within his own people. Now think of Jesus. Others have received similar calls throughout scripture as well. We have Amos. Right? He was like Moses. He tended the flocks of the sheep. His call came to prophesy to Israel, and he responded to that call. When he was told by the king of Israel to stop prophesying, he basically said, you must be kidding. His answer to him was this, I was no prophet, nor was I a son of a prophet, but I was a sheep breeder and a tender of sycamore fruit. Then the Lord took me as I followed the flock, and the Lord said to me, go, prophesy to my people Israel. After that, he went on to pronounce words of judgment on the king. Many years later, what happened? A group of men were fetched off of fishing boats and asked to speak out to the people, becoming fishers of men. The call is made, and the one who is called is expected to respond. However, there is at times a note of rebellion because the call before that call is actually accepted. Moses will fit into this category, as we'll see in the next weeks ahead. Probably the most famous such rebellion was who? Jonah, right? But he and Moses both they came through eventually. They were men of Israel called to minister to the people of Israel. Likewise, God didn't call an angel to deliver humanity. He called a human being to deliver them. Hebrews 1 explains this in detail. In order to redeem us, God chose to send his son into the world, uniting with humanity. In him, there was no hint of rebellion. There was no hint of reticence. Rather, the Bible says that he was called and he responded. Here's what it says from Hebrews. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the volume of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. And he will send him again someday, won't he? Jesus, both human and of Israel, to deliver Israel in the future. It's amazing to think on these things and to ponder them. I'm calling you to do my will, O man. Your commission is there in my word. Go and tell all the people you can that God's love is found in Jesus the Lord. 
Go forth, tell the message while there is time. I am with you and will be your guide. There is a hope in Christ wonderfully sublime. There is joy everlasting there at his side. Don't wait. Don't put it off another day. Now is the time of God's favor. Today is the day of salvation. Let the world know that Jesus is the way. He is the hope for every person in every nation. Our third thought today is you shall serve God on this mountain. This is verses 11 and 12. Verse 11, but Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Again, there is a definite article in front of God. It says, Ve'yomer Moshe el ha Elohim, and said Moses to the God. It is as if Moses, here he is, he's writing, he's remembering the conversation as he wrote the account. And he was also remembering the utter folly of his words. The Lord, who is the God, has called and he is questioned. He's standing in front of a burning bush that isn't consumed. There's a voice, but no form. He's identified himself as the one who was there for Abraham, for Isaac, and for Jacob. He's the initiator and the monitor of the covenant for the covenant people, and he has made a choice concerning them which involves Moses, and yet Moses questions the choice. But more than questioning the choice, he repeats the words just as he received them. The Lord said, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Moses responds, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? If you take this to its logical conclusion, now think this through, okay? Every time that we question the word of the God, we are in the same position as Moses. We can spend all day talking about how silly Moses was, but the point is that we are far, far more silly when we do the same. The words are carefully selected and recorded to ask us to consider them in the light of which they're intended. We have the writings of Buddha, right? Krishna, Muhammad. They're recorded, but they have no power because they are not from the God. But the words of the Bible are, and they are to be accepted and to be acted upon. Moses questioned after he knew the truth concerning who was talking to him. We can question until we know the truth, but afterwards we simply need to obey. He is the God and we are man. What he speaks is to be obeyed without question. A perfect example of this, and I bring it up from time to time, is found in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 12. Now, I didn't write the words. The God did. The word of the God says, and I do not permit a woman to teach her to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. However, all over the world, the response is, who am I that I am not permitted to teach or have authority over a man? The Anglican Church, as we saw in our prophecy update last week, just took this stand one week ago, departing from the word of the God. And so in open rebellion to the word of the God, women preach and they teach with men present, completely ignoring the instruction, which is as weighty as the words which were issued to Moses and his ears from the flames of the burning bush. Verse 12, so he said, I will certainly be with you. The Hebrew actually says, since I will be with you. The answer is in response to what Moses meant, not particularly the statement that was made. He implied that he wasn't capable of the challenge set before him. But the Lord's answer says, you are because I am with you. It is the same idea that we see in the words of Paul. He had this infirmity, which he felt was a limiting factor in his life and in his ministry, which he tells us about in 2 Corinthians. Here's what he said. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. Then he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Moses looked at the challenge from his human perspective, knowing that he was incapable of rising to it. But the Lord, not he, was the decisive factor which would ensure the outcome. Verse 12 continues, And this shall be a sign to you that I have sent you. The words are, And this to you the sign. The words shall be that you may have in your Bible are inserted by the translators. Some of them also add in a colon at the end of the thought to show that the sign is to be announced. However, some argue that the sign is the burning bush. In essence, the sign has been given. It's not what is coming. That is incorrect. The sign is forthcoming. The words shall be and the colon at the end of the thought are correct. 
It is the standard working of God to give a sign which is future as a testimony of the truth revealed in the present. The sign is an appeal to faith, not to sight. As Albert Barnes says about this, listen to what he says. The word means a declaration or promise of God, which rests absolutely on his word and demands faith. The promise that God would have the people serve him in that place was an assurance, if fully believed, that all intervening obstacles would be removed by his power. This same giving of a future sign is seen many times later in the Bible. One was given to Eli, the high priest of Israel, in 1 Samuel chapter 1. Another was given to King Hezekiah in 2 Kings chapter 19. And one of the most famous of such signs was given by the Lord to the house of David in Isaiah chapter 7. It says this, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Like these other signs that are given to God's people, the Lord has a sign for Moses if he is willing to accept what the sign implies. And that's our last portion of verse 12 today. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. The sign is given. It is stated as an accomplished fact. When you have brought out the people, it implies a deed which is past, even though it's still future. When it is performed, the sign will be confirmed. But once again, there is a definite article in front of God. You shall serve the God on this mountain. Not only is the sign given, but it's given in anticipation of serving the God, not a God. Now, why would he say that? Because they served a God at the bottom of that same mountain with the golden calf. This is why the Bible puts this definite article in there from time to time. It's rare, but it's in there, and we need to pay attention to why he's doing these things. The Lord who is called is the Lord who will be served. The call ensures his presence. His presence ensures the outcome. The outcome is anticipated in the sign, and the sign gives credit to the God in the service of him. Such a sign always appeals to faith. In that faith, it then provides every assurance necessary of the outcome. The end implies the means. If Moses looked forward and said, yes, I believe that this sign is true, then he would know that absolutely nothing could thwart its outcome. Understanding this in our own day and age, here we are sitting here, we can ask ourselves a simple question. Do we have a sign which is comparable to the one that Moses was given here? Anyone? Is the, what? Jesus. Is there something that we have that has been provided to us which follows the exact same pattern that we have in this passage today. Anyone? That's it. That's what I was looking for. The answer is yes. Moses was given the word of the Lord from the Lord. That's all that he was given. But it came from a bush which wasn't consumed. So he had something extra that we didn't have, didn't he? No. He had absolutely nothing extra at all. The bush was not the sign. The bush was the confirmation of the giver of the sign. We have a bush. Moses saw a bush that wasn't consumed. That's something that's beyond the norm. The bush spoke to him, something also beyond the norm. The voice identified himself and gave instruction for Moses to follow, and it gave a token of the truthfulness of what was spoken. What we have is no less miraculous. We have the Bible, which is the testament to the same Lord spoken from the same bush. It is the voice and the word of the Lord. It has been through the fire of time, and yet it has not been consumed, although many have tried to do so. Christ went through the fire of our judgment, and he wasn't consumed. And finally, we have a group of people known as Israel who have been preserved and not consumed despite every attempt possible to do so. And he has given us instructions to follow, exactly as Moses was given. And with the direction, we have been given a sign. If we truly believe the giving of that sign, then the outcome must be assured for us, just as it was for Moses. Either that, or we're just wasting our time. Who would put a faith in a sign that has no meaning? Our sign is the hope of the resurrection. Our sign is the promise of eternal life. Our sign is to serve God on his holy mountain. The sign has been given, and it must surely come to pass. The last page of the Bible says so. Here's what it says in Revelation 22, verse 3. And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, 
and his servants shall serve him. We have exactly the same sign. Exactly. The reason why we are here is because of faith in the sign. However, one cannot receive what the sign implies without faith. There is nothing else we can do to be granted eternal life because the sign is based solely on faith. And so I would ask you to consider that. People want what the sign implies. Everybody says, I want to go to heaven, but they don't want the responsibilities expected from the giver of the sign. And that's a problem. It's not going to happen. The Bible says that there is a heaven and that some will be headed there. The reason for this is that there is one path which leads to it, and that is through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. God asks us to have faith in what his word says. All of his word, not any little portion that we don't want that we take out. All of his word is a united whole. And so God asks us to have faith in the work of his son, which is detailed in that same word. And so please give me just one more moment to explain to you about what he did and how you can receive it and to be granted eternal life in his eternal, glorious, wonderful presence. The Bible says a very simple process. God created, man was in paradise with him, man wanted to turn his back on him, and he did. He rejected the Lord, and man was cast out of that paradise. And from that point, God has been working out a plan through all of human history to bring us back to that wonderful place, that holy mountain where we can worship him once again. What happened back at the Garden of Eden is called sin. And all have sinned, according to the Bible, and all fall short of the glory of God. And this doesn't mean just active sins that we commit in the flesh. It means that we inherited Adam's sin. Everybody in Adam, every human being ever born, inherited Adam's sin. And so we're fallen. And we are not a part of God's covenant. We are outside of it, except for Jesus Christ, because he was born of the Holy Spirit and of a woman, but he had no human father. So the line of sin was cut in Jesus Christ. And he gives us a choice. We can put our faith in what Jesus did because he lived perfectly after being born perfect. He gave his life up on the cross of Calvary so that we could be reconciled to God the Father through that act and that act alone. Why? Because if he's sinless and the wages of sin is death and he died on the cross of Calvary and we have faith in that, then our sin goes to the cross with him. We were talking about that earlier. Christ became sin who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Our sin is nailed to that cross, and he proved it because he came out of the grave. The wages of sin is death. He didn't sin, and so he came out of the grave. And we are in Christ now, and therefore we will come out of the grave. The brother that we're losing right now that we all visited yesterday in the hospital is lying there in great peace, knowing that he is going to be in a much better place very soon, despite the pain that he's in. He has that absolute assurance that he will be raised, and it's only through the blood of Jesus Christ. So if you have never called on Christ, stop being obstinate. Stop being obstinate and just simply yield yourself to him. And then take this word and say, I'm going to be obedient to the giver of the sign. If you believe the sign, then why wouldn't you believe every single word that this is, says? Because this is the word of the God. Call on Jesus Christ. Be reconciled to God the Father. Submit yourself to him and praise him for all eternity, for the glorious deeds that he has done for people like you and me. Unbelievable. Our closing verse today comes from Isaiah chapter 40. It's the ninth verse. O Zion, you who bring good tidings, get up into the high mountain. O Jerusalem, you who bring good tidings, lift up your voice with strength. Lift it up and be not afraid. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Unbelievable. Next week is Exodus 3, 13 through 15. I am that I am. That'll be your eighth Genesis sermon. Now I'll tell you this as I do each week. The Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. Even if a deep ocean lies ahead of you, he can part those waters and he can lead you through it on dry ground. So follow him and trust him and let him do marvelous things for you and through you. Okay? I have a poem for you based on the verses that we looked at today, as I always do. It's called, You Shall Serve God on This Mountain. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry of affliction. Because of their taskmasters, they have woes, for I know and am aware of their sorrows. So I have come down them to deliver out of the Egyptians' hand and to bring them from there in this matter to a good and large land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites too, 
and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites, and also the Jebusites, a land which your fathers knew. Now therefore behold the cry in affliction of the children of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them constantly. Now come now therefore, and I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. I am calling you to do this thing. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt as you have instructed so? How can I possibly do this thing? So he said, I will certainly be with you and this shall be a sign to you that you I have sent. When you have brought the people of Egypt out too, you shall serve God on this mountain. So be confident. Moses was given a sign, a token of guarantee that the word would surely come about. Thus he could conduct his affairs confidently. For him, there would be no reason for doubt. And the same holds true for each of us. We can be wholly sure and confident as we go. When we call out to the Lord Jesus, our future hope is guaranteed. In this, we can know. Is there a great and mighty mountain that stands in our way? It is less than nothing when on our side is God. He can make the trials melt away and give us a smooth path on which to trod. So let's put all our confidence in the Lord because we have eternal assurances from him in his word. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for this wonderful passage. It shows our own weakness. If a man that we revere so much as, as Moses, who is considered the great prophet of God, the man who saw God face to face, the most humble man who ever lived, <laughs> failed in his confidence before you. How much more do you understand our own failings and our own weaknesses and our own lack of confidence? Forgive, forgive us of those times. Strengthen us. Strengthen our weak knees and uh, make our uh, paths straight and smooth so that we can just walk without fear, without slipping, and without being uh, weak in our convictions. Strengthen us. We pray this, O oh God, that you will be glorified through how we use our lives and how we conduct ourselves. Thank you for this uh, uh, congregation here. Thank you for each person that's here. Please bless them. Take care of them the people that are on streaming right now and anybody on YouTube who watches this later, I would pray that you would just bless them as only you can do. And if they have needs, help them through those times of trial or trouble or affliction. And we'll be sure to praise you as we skip along life's highway waiting to come into your glorious presence. And may that day be so. We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. We received the instruction for the Lord's Supper from the hand of Paul, and uh, he wrote us these words from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. He said, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and he would have given thanks over that bread. He would have said these words, Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech ha'olam ha'motzi lechem min ha'aretz. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe brings forth bread from the earth and he broke it and he said take and eat this is my body which is broken for you do this in remembrance of me in the same manner he also took the cup after supper and he would have blessed us as well he would have said Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam Borei Peri HaGuffin Blessed art thou O Lord our God King of the universe creator of the fruit of the vine this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself not discerning the Lord's body.
blood, Lord Jesus Christ. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost. As it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for the body of Jesus that was broken for our sins and was nailed to the cross of Calvary. Thank you that our sins are washed away in that precious blood of Jesus Christ. And thank you for the absolute 100% surety that we have that he is returning again. You have spoken, your word is truth, and we accept that premise, that he is returning again. And so we proclaim his death until he does come again. And then for all eternity, we're going to proclaim his glory and his majesty in your wondrous presence, O oh God. How we love you, how we thank you for this surety that we have. What a confidence, what a great confidence that we have because of Jesus. We love you. We praise you. We exalt you in his name. Amen. Amen. Amen.